Hello everyone and welcome to the Business of PT podcast. I'll be your host, JT Moore. In this podcast, we will be interviewing successful physical therapists and learning about their stories in the field of PT. We will discuss a variety of topics such as entrepreneurship, careers, and pathways in physical therapy, as well as important characteristics in becoming a great PT. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you liked it, make sure to subscribe to get updates when new podcasts are released. Thanks, everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Business of PT podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Lance Mabry with us. He is a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist with fellowship training in manual therapy and primary care. He served in both the United States Marine Corps and United States Air Force and has been deployed in support of both Operation Iraq Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. He's an assistant professor at High Point University where he teaches the primary care, diagnostic imaging, and professionalism slash leadership curriculum. Dr. Mabry has 27 peer-reviewed publications focusing primarily on clinical reasoning, differential diagnosis, medical screening, and diagnostic imaging. Lance, thanks for coming on. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I'm really excited to be able to talk to you today. Um, like we had kind of discussed in previous um, conversations, this is the first time ever having somebody on the military side of PT, and I'm really excited to be able to hear that aspect as well as get into the other aspects of academia and things. But before that, would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience and give a little background of yourself? Uh, sure, yeah. So um, so my background, I, I got into PT through the uh, U.S. Army Baylor uh, University. Um, so I graduated in 2007. Uh, I then went uh, to Travis Air Force Base, where I worked both uh, inpatient and outpatient uh, care. Uh, I then transitioned to Kaiser Permanente uh, in Vallejo, California, where I went to the Manual Therapy and Primary Care Fellowship uh, through FAMP, uh, through AOMP, excuse me. Um, from there, I was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, where I was the uh, Director of Physical Therapy Services. Uh, I led. I, I, both did outpatient physical therapy as well as our inpatient mission there. And while I was there, we were able to establish physical therapy presence within the emergency department, which was uh, which was exciting and cutting edge at the time. Uh, after that, I was stationed at Joint Base Andrews, where I served primarily as the physical medicine flight commander. Um, so director of rehabilitation, I think would be the civilian counterpart to that. So I was in charge of physical therapy, occupational therapy, and chiropractic services. Um, I later went on to uh, serve as the uh, biomedical sciences uh, consultant uh, to the hospital. So essentially, uh, biomedical sciences, that's uh, pretty much everyone that is not either a dentist, nurse, physician, or, um, or a medical service, you know, healthcare administrator. So pretty much anybody else. So podiatrists, pharmacists, uh, optometrists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, there's about 17 different professions that uh, that are comprised in that. Uh, so I was kind of the advisor to those professions for a while uh, before transitioning to uh, the civilian sector at, at High Point University. Um, and at High Point University, I, I teach diagnostic imaging and primary care uh, primarily. Uh, I also teach in our professionalism and leadership series, uh, talking about you know the importance of APTA membership and, and how to, you know, billing and coding and, and some more of the uh, leadership and administrative ends of, of being a PT. Perfect. Thank you. And yeah, just based off that, it feels like there's going to be a lot of different aspects that we're going to be able to talk about in your decorated career already. And I wanted to kind of know just before all of that, what initially got you into PT? And specifically, did you always have envisioned going into military PT or did that come about? I know like Baylor obviously has a connection there, but what kind of got you into the path of PT to begin with? Yeah. So, um, so I think I, I wanted to become a PT since about the eighth grade. Uh, I broke my finger playing football and, and ended up having surgery, broke through the growth plate. Uh, so I had uh, surgery and then uh, post-operatively, I actually had uh, occupational therapy at the time, which uh, uh, the, the, the surgeons always referred to as physical therapy. So, uh, and the occupational therapist never corrected me. So I, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to physical therapy. Um, uh, and it wasn't until years later I, I realized that he was an occupational therapist. So, uh, so that kind of got me down the the path of of physical therapy. Um, as far as doing it in the military, um, that was never really a uh, that that kind of stumbled into that. I I um, to be frank, when I was younger, I didn't really think a whole lot of the military. Um, 
you know, I thought that's what you did if you couldn't, you know, finish high school or, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the stereotypes that are out there about the military that I, I later found out were not true at all. And, and um, so I never really had interest in the military until, uh, frankly, I, I didn't get enough money for college and uh, I need to find a way to, to help finance that. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps from that. And then, uh, and then a lot of those stereotypes I had about the military thereafter were, were dispelled as I, as I learned more about it. So uh, once I got in the Marines, I realized I, I really enjoyed the military culture and the military life. And I, I enjoyed it enough that I wanted to make a career out of it. Um, but the, the Marines don't have medical. So uh, the Marines get all their medical through the Navy. So if I was going to remain in the military and if I was going to uh, be in the medical field, primarily physical therapy, I, I was going to have to do that elsewhere. And um, that's when I got an opportunity to commission the Air Force. And, and, I, and I capitalized on that opportunity. That is awesome. And yeah, I guess that's cool that like, I mean, even though PT wasn't the exact uh, beginning part of your thing, you're able to just love it, and you want to be able to help people with that. And honestly, like I, I personally don't like. I was able to shadow a little bit um, at an Air Force base, a little bit of PT. Um, but for the audience that may not be aware, could you explain a little bit about what the day in life is for a physical therapist in the Air Force, like you were? Yeah, so um, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about that, similar to to what I had before I joined the military. Um, uh, so I've had people say things like, I can't join the military because, you know, I don't want to march or I, I can't join the military because I don't want to get yelled at or I can't join the military because, you know, I don't want to be on the front lines getting, you know, getting shot at and things like that. And and, um, and certainly are there aspects of the military that exist? Yes, um, certainly. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to physical therapy, you know, when you start getting to the medical side, um, that's really not what we're doing. I mean, on, on the medical side, we are working primarily in a hospital or a clinic. And, um, you know, I can probably count on, on one hand the number of times I got, you know, yelled at uh, over the span of my, uh, my two decades of service. I mean, um, I can really count on one hand the number of times I got yelled at as, as, a, as a military medical officer. So um, it just doesn't really happen. It's, it's, you know, that's something that's on TV a lot and in the movies and it makes, it makes great movies. But um, but when it comes down to it, I, I think the day in the life of a, a military PT is not any different than the day in, in the life of a civilian PT. I, I, uh, I go to work, I see patients primarily all day, um, and then I come home. And uh, uh, so I think one of the, the biggest differences from the, the military side is our patient population. So, you know, in the civilian sector, um, uh, they might be seeing potentially a, a broader array of, of patients. Uh, in the military, it's congressionally mandated that we see active duty first. Um, so our, our primary patient population is that, you know, 18 to 40, 45 year old population. So typically younger, uh, typically healthier um, uh, because they have to be, because they're in the military. So uh, it does qualify as sports physical therapy, although I don't know if it would be the same as working with a sports team, um, but it is more athletic population. Um, yeah, outside of that, it's just, it's working in a hospital, seeing patients all day, but you're doing it uh, while you're dressed like a tree. <laughs> I like it. Perfect. And th thank you for sharing like all of those different aspects and, and things and kind of taking off those misconceptions um, with PT in the military. Um, one thing that I've kind of learned in the didactic portion of my program is there are some unique aspects of working in the military and how kind of the scope of practice differs a little bit from the civilian side. Um, honestly, how we were kind of presented with it is that a military PT has a little bit more um, of that autonomy and that ability to be able to I care for the patient and kind of provide more things. Could you explain a little bit about that and some of that un those unique aspects of working in the military? Yeah, so um, so military is really big on uh, pushing the boundaries of medicine, and and if you look, uh, and this is beyond just physical therapy, but if you look, a lot of medical innovation comes out of the military um, because they're not necessarily bound by the same bureaucratic um, constraints that we have uh, outside of, of federal property. So um, so in the military, physical therapists. Uh, can do things like prescribe medications. Now, um, now there's a, a limited number of medications we're allowed to prescribe. It's primarily uh, NSAIDs, Tylenol, and muscle relaxants. Um, and I believe that's largely it. Um, we can also do uh, uh, cutaneous corticosteroids like dex dexamethasone or things like that for phonophoresis or iontophoresis without a, uh, 
a specific physician referral for that. Um, we can also refer for any kind of imaging you want, MRI, CT scans, uh, radiographs. Uh, we have unlimited direct access. Um, we can refer for uh, lab studies um, for uh, different screening uh, needs. We can also refer uh, directly to any other specialists like uh, orthopedics and, and uh, neurosurgery and things like that. So, um, so there's definitely a lot more uh, responsibility. Um, there's a lot more autonomy. Um, but with that, there are also a lot more expectations. So, I mean, if you look at uh, some of the studies that have come out, you know, comparing military PTs to their civilian counterparts, um, the military PTs are are the best in the nation. I mean, it, 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 they really um, have shown repeatedly over and over again to, to be superior to the civilian counterparts. Now, um, what does that mean, right? Um, that's not a ding on the, their civilian counterparts. I think a lot of a lot of what's happening there is that um, PTs outside of the military are restricted a lot uh, by different rules and regulations, both through practice acts and at the board level, um, that prevents their growth in many ways. Um, and one of the main reasons, the one of the main ways from that is diagnostic imaging. Um, without diagnostic imaging. The, the growth, the personal growth of physical therapists is substantially limited and their ability to plug into the medical system is substantially limited as long as they're prevented from doing that. So, um, so when we look at, for instance, the Air Force physical therapists, uh, the Air Force only puts two people a year through US Army Baylor. I was one of those two. Um, and uh, the rest of their PTs, they hire from the civilian sector. So uh, because of that, the vast majority of PTs in the Air Force are civilian trained, but yet they are having all of these great outcomes that we see in the literature. So, so what that tells us is there isn't any secret sauce about the military training. It, I think really what it comes down to is once you release the restrictions on physical therapists, they can grow into their full potential. And that's when we see them doing all of these great things. So, um, uh, so I think that's one of the big differences we see um, between the, the military and the civilian sector. I think some of the things we're seeing in the military as well is, um, you know, physical therapists are viewed as equals within the system. You know, physical therapists can be hospital commanders. They can run a hospital as the lead of, 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 uh, of the hospital. We don't really see that in the civilian sector, um, to my knowledge. Uh, you know, they um, they can run other clinics. They can be in charge of. They can be in, in command of a a surgical squadron or things of that matter. So, um, we're really looked upon as as peers in the in the medical profession. But but because of that, again, the the expectations of us and the responsibilities are are high, and and we expect our PTs to to act in that manner. Um, the other thing, the other thing I would say, and, and I see a big difference between the military PTs and the, and the civilian sector on this is everything that a military PT would do throughout the day would be something that a doctor should be doing, right? A doctorally trained medical professional should be doing. And everything that was more of a technician slash assistant was for the most part, um, was for the most part delegated to technicians or assistants. Um, that's a lot different than what I'm seeing outside of the military. So for instance, right now the APTA has this big push on uh, vitals or vital. Um, I agree, vitals are vital. We should absolutely be taking vitals. Um, however, uh, I have never had my vitals taken by a physician. Never once. I've never had my vitals taken by a PA. I've never had my vitals taken by an NP. You know, um, the the people that are taking my vitals in these clinics are uh, are technicians typically. So um, they they go to the medical assistant. They take our blood pressure and our uh, temperature and the like. And then ultimately, the physician or the PA or NP they come in and they look at that temperature and they look at that blood pressure and then they they make decisions for it uh, on it. So. Uh, while I think there are some settings where, you know, physical therapists might be doing blood pressure while the patient is on a treadmill or things like that, for the most part, I need to think about, we, I think we need to think about how much during the day are we doing as doctorally trained medical professionals that we don't need a doctor to do. And if we, if we kind of embrace that culture and start looking at the future of PT being 
embracing the role of a doctorally trained profession as opposed to embracing the role of the technicians that we came from, right? We were, we were born as a profession as rehabilitation aides that were subservient to the orthopedic surgeons. Um, but we've grown from that, right? But yet we still hold on to this technician-based philosophy in, in many of the things that we do, right? And and if you think about, you know, how many PAs are going to stand in the gym and count to 10, right? How many NPs are going to stand in the gym and count to 10? How many physicians are going to stand in the gym and count to 10? But yet, but yet we do that every day. And then we and then we complain that we don't make enough money. We're not making enough, you know, we're doctorally trained professionals, we're not making enough money. And my thought is, well, shoot, man, like, why are we teaching our patients quad sets and, and squats and lunges? And like, we can probably have our technicians do that, right? Instead, why don't we focus more of our time on building those treatment plans and, and working with, you know, patient diagnoses and, and prognoses and patient management and coordinating, you know, lab results and imaging results and coordinating Lex level care if they have to go on to surgery and, and, and those kind of things and, and focusing more on the doctoral end of things as opposed to the technician end, right? And when I talk about these things, I'll get pushback from people and they'll say things like, well, you know, I don't want to be like a physician. I want to have, you know, I want to build a relationship with the patients and things like that. And and absolutely, I agree. You know, in the military, we're still seeing our patients for 40 minute evals, you know, depending on our setting, uh, up to an hour evals, again, depending on the setting. Um, we're still seeing those patients in 20 to 30 minute follow-ups. Um, so we're still building those relationships. It's not a five minute evaluation like we are with the physician, but during that hour or during that half hour, we are doing the things that we are doctorally prepared to do and everything else that doesn't require a doctor to do it. We're handing those off to our, to our assistants. Yeah. Perfect. There's a lot of things right there that I want to unpack and talk about. And I, I liked like that last kind of portion we were talking about focusing on that. I feel like I, like we had talked about this before and it really kind of gave me a perspective change. But yeah. We are doctors, physical therapy, like the skills that we have, like, Obviously, we can do those other things as well, but we really want to maximize those skills and those talents and all that education that we that we took to be able to apply that in the best way to provide the best care for the patient. Yeah, because all of those things, like you said, the vitals, going in, counting, like counting to ten, those type of things, you would never see another medical profession professional do, and we do it. Yes, I mean, I think going in, if we had to teach a complex like movement pattern, something like that, to provide the proper cueing and things like that, I can see those aspects, but to really there's other aspects, and like you said, because we're seeing our patients so consistently, it's not going to be like a physician where it's five minutes and and, and out. Like you can't do that with our profession, and provide. I think in my eyes, provide adequate care. Like we're still going to have that time of follow up and working with them, and fine tuning anything, at least creating that plan of care and and having that communication aspect so important. And we see them so regularly, so I don't think we could ever completely get to that realm. Um, so I think it's almost like a going too far over that on that side um, but I also wanted to talk about you talked about it kind of early on in that was about diagnostic imaging and this is something that you like we talked about before and that you're very passionate about um, and bringing it over to the civilian side and getting that more and more um, you even talked to me about like all the different states that have already started to allow those things and I kind of wanted to act like enter into that topic you entered into, into academia and you're teaching diagnostic imaging could you elaborate on why you entered academia and also what is the importance of imaging in the PT world and how much does it provide us as medical professionals to be able to um, better treat our patient, better provide for them and why we should continue to advocate for having this in all of the state's practice acts. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot to talk about. I mean, there's there's a couple of questions there. So um, so I think one of the, the things you asked me is, is why academia and, and why diagnostic imaging? So um, so I went to, as mentioned before, I went to US Army Baylor and we had our diagnostic imaging taught by um, a radiologist. And I look back at my time there and, you know, the radiologist did an incredible job of relaying, you know, this is what this image looks like and this is what that image looks like and this is what this pathology looks like. Um, but there really wasn't that clinical piece to, to tie it all in. Um, and that's nothing against the radiologist. That's just not what they really do, right? They're not evaluating the patient and then making a determination as to whether an image should be ordered or, sh or shouldn't. 
they're more on the the reading interpretation end. So, so I, I don't think I got a lot out of the course, and I, and I don't think that was because the course was bad. I just think it was it was taught at a level that I wasn't quite ready to to learn it at. Um, so I remember when I when I got to my first um, full time clinical fill, well my my long term clinical fill was at Travis Air Force Base. You know we were expected to order imaging and know about imaging and. You know, and, and I and I think I thought I knew something about it because we learned about the Ottawa ankle rules and the Ottawa knee rules. So I went in, you know, chef, pu- chef puffed <laughs> out, you know, I'm going to be a doctor soon and I know everything. And then and then I got there and I saw my first patient and they were a chronic low back pain patient. And I'm like, well, well, shoot, that doesn't I mean, the Ottawa knee rules, and the Ottawa ankle rules don't apply. <laughs> and now I, I still need to make a decision. And, you know, and that's when I realized, wow, like, you know, these rules, um, they're really helpful for a, a specific subset of patients. But when you start getting into, you know, the chronicity and, and the, the, the patients that we're making determinations on, um, they don't always really fall into these rules. So, um, and that's when I realized, oh, shoot, I, I don't know anything about imaging. And, um, and that's when I really decided to double down and, and learn about it. And, and, um, and I think that that's a decision that a lot of people have to make, right? And, and we see this now where, um, people don't know anything about it. And then the easy solution is they'll say things like imaging doesn't matter. Imaging doesn't, you know, imaging doesn't help imaging, you know, hurts patients imaging. And yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to just a lack of knowledge about what imaging is, right? Imaging is a tool. Like, and if you use that tool appropriately, it works well. If you use the tool inappropriately, it doesn't work well, right? So, but that is not a fault of the tool. That's a fault of the person using the tool. And and we see a lot of these biases in in imaging and, and physical therapists will propagate these like crazy. And, and one of the things that that drives me nuts and, and, and anybody listening should be able to identify whether or not they have this bias is people will share these studies that say things like, you know, X number of asymptomatic patients were found to have ankle pathology or hip pathology or shoulder pathology. Okay, uh, but that's not a clinical-based study. There's not a clinician in the world sitting in clinic right now today that has an asymptomatic patient walk through the door and they wanna know what's on their image. That, that's not reality, right? Reality is not that our patients are asymptomatic. They're symptomatic, that's why they're there, right? Um, and there's no other research where we would allow this to go on with no comparable group, right? No control group. So, so let me give you an example of this. If I performed any kind of therapeutic technique, manual therapy or McKenzie or what, you know, directional preference or whatever, and didn't have a comparable group, a control group, a sham group, a whatever group, if I just said, okay, we're going to give these 30 patients directional preference and at the end they got better and then i repeated that study over and over and over again and never did it with a control group and never did it with a comparable group at some point they'd stop publishing that study they would be like well one okay like that means nothing i mean great they got two better on the nprs but maybe maybe a placebo would have gotten them three better that gives us no information at all right mm-hmm. yeah we see this all the time with these studies the asymptomatics well there's no comp- comparison group. But if you actually look at the, the studies where they compare diagnostic imaging of, of asymptomatics and they do a case control against symptomatics, they find sub- significantly more pathology in symptomatics than they do in asymptomatics. But nobody shares those studies. And when you look at the research, they don't get cited nearly as highly because our pendulum has swung so far away in one direction on the bias against imaging uh, when it shouldn't be there. Imaging is a tool, and if you use it correctly, it works well. It works well, right? Then people will talk about things like uh, nocebo, right? Essentially, that uh, imaging findings can hurt the patient because patients then wear that that diagnosis of whatever degenerative disc disease on their, um, you know, throughout the the course of their care, and and in fact. Uh, AAMP actually did a white paper on uh, this. I was one of the authors on it, uh, that we shouldn't use the term degenerative disc disease because it's it's harmful to patients. So uh, 
so those kind of studies, yes, I, I agree with everything they're saying. But if we think about who are the people that are conveying these findings to the patients, they're primarily primary care pay providers, right? They're primarily those providers working in family medicine who know respectfully almost nothing about musculoskeletal care, right? So who knows more about degenerative disc disease? You know, us or primary care? Who knows more about ACL tears? Us or primary care? Who knows more about any radiculopathies, you know, um, rotator cuff tears, things like that? So the answer to all that is, can imaging findings hurt patients? Sure, if they're in the wrong hands and the wrong people that aren't educated in these things are relaying these findings, then yeah, they, they may not have the skills to convey what's actually going on. But if we shift that responsibility to us as physical therapists, and we can have those same conversations with patients, yeah, you know, you have a rotator cuff tear, but it's very small. You know, it, there's nothing here that indicates you need any kind of surgery. These are the kind of things that we treat all the time. These tend to get better. Um, you know, yes, you have degenerative disc disease, but uh, or or reductions in your in your intervertebral spaces or however we want to term it. Um, but it's not severe, and this is something that we treat all the time, and this is something we get better. And a lot of times, having those conversations, what I'm seeing clinically, when I'm having those nuanced conversations. It reduces patients' fear. It increases their function. It it, it 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 reduces their pain. Just having that reassurance that hey, look, we found some things, right? But nothing's bad here, right? Um, but they don't always necessarily get that from primary care. Again, just because primary care, and it's nothing against primary care, that's just not their skill set, right? So, um, so my viewpoint on it is, physical therapists they use these studies, and they they keep saying things like imaging is bad. Imaging is not bad. Imaging is a tool, right? The way imaging is being used is bad, primarily. And because of that, that is why we should be arguing the most for it. The people that are saying all of these bad things about imaging, they should be the biggest advocates for PTs getting imaging because they should be saying, shoot, it's not being used right. Give it to us because we've been shown over and over and over again in the research that we do it better than they do in primary care. And that's been true in the McGill study, in the Mabry study, in the Crowell study, in the Moore study. I mean, there's so many studies out there um, that actually look at these things. We use it better. So we need to advocate, instead of bashing imaging, we need to adv advocate for the imaging responsibility to be shifted to the musculoskeletal experts. Yeah, thank you for that because I feel like like what you said at the beginning is so true. It's a tool, and how you use that tool is either going to make or break. It's going to be like it's going to be productive with it or it's not. And I feel uh -huh. like a lot of people, even just like kind of like scrolling through social media, sometimes there will be that stigma of oh, imaging is going to like provide a negative effect on the patient. Kind of what you said with you know having them think they're going to carry this around with them and they can't get over it. But I think us being able to understand the imaging and then provide that patient education in a way that will dispel any fear or unknowns that they have in a way that will empower them to overcome those mm -hmm. those pathologies I think is such a important aspect and the thing that we can really provide like you said as PTs as compared to other professionals um, and I think that was so important what do you see I guess in the future of PT in regards to imaging and creating more autonomy as physical therapists yeah, so that's a great question. We, um, uh, we're we working on a study now. We actually just finished up the data analysis portion. Um, so we're, we're working on writing the manuscript now, but um, we put out a survey uh, back in December of 2020 to May of 2021, um, looking at physical therapy utilization of diagnostic imaging skills. Uh, we ended up getting uh, just shy of 6,000 respondents. Um, so it's it's a massive, massive study with a lot of data. And um, essentially what we found is that uh, physical therapists are already using imaging skills widely. Um, but what they're not able to do in many instances is refer directly to radiology. So physical therapists are using those imaging skills and then ultimately referring to primary care or orthopedics or somewhere else. They're, they're adding that extra step into the patient getting what they need, right? And, and that extra step, every, every step we have in the medical system is a step where 
mistake can happen, communication errors, uh, patient can be lost to follow up, you know, various other things. Uh, but then on top of it, every every step the patient has, that's another cost to the healthcare system. That's another cost to the patient in the form of copay and things like that. Um, so I, you know, when you look at the the future of PT, I, I think you can you can soundly look at, you know, how the military is practicing, and if we can get the this is the physical therapists outside of the military market emulating uh, the way PT is practiced more in the military sector. I think that would be a, a phenomenal future uh, for the physical therapy profession. Um, I think a big role in that is imaging. We cannot really become primary care providers the way we're talking about it. Um, we can't become primary care physical therapists without really having access to imaging. That really limits us. Um, you know, so that's the, the first big step. We have seen a lot of change in that recently. So uh, everybody's probably familiar at this point um, with Wisconsin and with uh, Colorado. So um, there are a couple of different models out there as far as how to get imaging. Um, the most restrictive way or the most, uh, maybe not the most restrictive, the, the highest hurdle to getting imaging in a state is going through the state legislature. Once you start going through the state legislature, you're going to have other medical groups oppose you, it's political, it's Republicans and Democrats, and, and it can get partisan, and and, um, and what you'll see is a lot of, of back and forth on that. So um, right now there are four states that have uh, imaging through their, uh, through their practice acts. Um, that's Wisconsin, Rhode Island, um, uh, Utah, and North Dakota. And I think three of those, Wisconsin, Rhode Island, North Dakota, all only possess uh, the ability to refer for radiolog uh, radiographs, to my understanding. Uh, Utah is actually interesting. Utah got their, um, their ability through the Radiology Tech uh, Practice Act, not through the Physical Therapist Practice Act. So to my understanding, uh, Utah physical therapists are allowed to refer for any kind of imaging. Um, however, if states can avoid that path, I mean, if unless there is an actual practice act blockade to it, it's probably not wise to go that way. Um, the easier path to go is through the state board rules. So again, if there isn't a practice act or any other legislative rule that would block this, um, going through the practice act is a, a lesser hurdle. That's what Colorado did. So Colorado has it in their practice act, they can order x-rays or MRIs. Um, uh, and I believe, um, so that's Colorado, that's five. There are two of them that actually did it an even easier pathway. And this wasn't by changing board rules. It was by um, the board making decisions on what their, or interpretations of what their rules already state. Uh, I believe that was Maryland and DC. So that wasn't even at the board rule level. That was even an easier level going through a decision tree. And then, um, the potentially easiest pathway is just viewing as no obligatory or no prohibitive language uh, being in the system. So essentially, if if both the practice acts and the uh, board rules are silent on imaging, um, we can view that as uh, no prohibitions to it, and therefore we can uh, order it. So I believe that's what New Jersey and Pennsylvania are doing right now. There's a medical system out there uh, that actually has PTs ordering imaging uh, because there's nothing currently to say they can't. Um, so uh, so there are, I, I've been talking to, you know, as part of our research, I've been talking to a lot of the chapter presidents across the nation. Um, I know of a couple of other ones, but I don't wanna, I don't wanna put them on blast, but I know of at least five other states that are uh, working on imaging and have various um, uh, various advancements going on. Um, I think in the next decade, you're going to see many, many states get it. Just like you you saw in the last decade, um, the majority of states now have have dry needling, and that didn't really become a thing until 2009. So in the last 12 years, uh, the majority of states have adopted it. I think you're going to see a, a very similar path in the next 10 to 12 years in physical therapy. And and with that. Um, that is going to change the expectations that we have of our physical therapists in the nation, right? You, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to skate by and say things like, "I'm just a physical therapist," right? If 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 you've ever said that, or if, or if a listener has ever said that, you should kind of reflect on what that means, right? Just a physical therapist. We are the single best trained 
providers in the in the nation on conservative care of musculoskeletal conditions we're the best so we should never say we're just physical therapists so um so we're going to need to embrace that role as we start um you know filling out the shoes of being a, a doctorally trained profession perfect i love that and i love kind of what you said like that where we're trending and, and where it's headed i think that's going to be such a a big step and another continuous step to to grow a profession and to have that have that light on, on pt being shed um, and now i kind of wanted to um just kind of go back to kind of what we talked about earlier on in in the episode um you kind of we talked about a little bit uh of being a military pt and i just wanted to know what was it like being in on a military base stationed overseas um, being a physical therapist what were some of those things um, where were you stationed and what were some of those responsibilities and roles that you had while there yeah so um so great question so i was uh stationed in afghanistan uh, bagram air base uh, uh, as the physical therapy clinic chief um this was in 2008 and 2009 um so so some of the challenge we challenges we had there so um so i, I would say primarily the the first challenge is um we were absolutely on an island um uh, and i don't mean literally on an island but i mean uh there was no other physical therapist really around um, to interact with. I had another, uh, I had another physical therapist uh, that was also at Bagram, but he was working in the uh, with the prison population. Um, so while we saw each other on occasion, um, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity for collaboration on cases. So, um, so with that, you were largely by yourself, and and the the colleagues that I had back stateside. Um, you know, the, the time difference was something like 12 hours. So they were asleep while I was awake and, and, and I was, you know, uh, asleep when they were awake. So, you know, if I had a challenging case, I didn't really have anybody to reach out to from a, from a physical therapy standpoint. Um, but I was able to lean on the orthopedic, the orthopedic surgeons and the primary care providers if, if, uh, if it was something non-PT related. Um, so I would say that that was the first thing is, you know, you're, you're on an island and because of that, you really need to be on your game. Um, I would say the other thing is uh, the orthopedic surgeons were very busy. They were saving lives. They were performing amputations and and um, other life-saving surgeries. Um, and because of that, they didn't really have a whole lot of time for um, some of the, the non-surgical outpatient care that a lot of orthopedic surgeons are, are doing stateside. Um, so their, their cut to consult ratio was exceptionally high. They were, they were performing uh, surgery on on the majority of their patients, right? Because they had a, a high traumatic load. So, uh, so because of that, uh, the the workflow as far as a musculoskeletal standpoint was primarily on me as a physical therapist. Um, additionally, uh, primary care was um, somewhat overwhelmed seeing um, you know as many patients as as we had. So. Uh, so in the morning we would have sick call, which essentially people can just walk in um, and get an appointment. And they were seen first come first serve in primary care, um, in family uh, family practice. And I would just go over there as a physical therapist and I would look through who's coming in and, oh, you're coming for back pain, great, you're with me today. You're coming in for neck pain, you're with me today. You're coming in for knee, knee pain, you're with me today. And I would pluck off those patients. I would take them over to PT and, and essentially um, I was a family practice primary care provider. You know, all the patients that were coming to family practice, they would see me. So um, I was seeing 25 patients a day um, and none of, or, none of them were group patients. So I would start seeing patients at roughly 6 a.m. and I would continue to see patients until there were no longer any patients there. So um, some, you know, it was 12 hour days pretty much every day. Sometimes it was a little bit longer. Um, and it was 12 hour days, six days a week. Uh, they did give us Sunday off, which was nice. Um, and then of those 25 patients, um, I actually did the math on it. It ended up being the average day was 20 evals a day and five follow-ups. So most people that you were seeing, you would never see again. Three out of four people that you were seeing, you'd never see again. Um, and the reason is, is a lot of times they were coming off of convoys or, um, you know, they were only at the base for a very brief period, or maybe they were coming to the base on their way back to Germany or, or whatever else. Um, so a lot of people you were seeing, you were only seeing once. So you would have to do things like, you know, get them a solid disposition. Do they need imaging? Do they need labs? Do they need 
a referral for surgery? Do they need, um, you know, a home exercise program to take with them? Do they need any kind of uh, equipment that they're going to take? You kind of had to do all of those things all at once, boom, day one, right? Um, and get them all set up because you're probably not going to see them ever again. So um, uh, it made for a very, it made for long days, but it was very fulfilling. That is awesome. Yeah, that is definitely a very a lot of things going on, um, and to be able to have the majority of them evals, I think it's a lot more of a different patient load um, mm-hmm. than what we typically see in the civilian side. And so, yeah, thank you for sharing those. Um, I also kind of wanted to know what are some of these important aspects or important attributes that you would say or give advice to for anybody that is interested in getting into work on the military PG. Uh, well, I, so um, I think one of the things I hear a ton um, is people that have interest in the military, but they don't really know um, how to get in or how to get their foot in the door. Um, they also talk a lot about, you know, are there are there roles um, serving the military both in uniform and outside of uniform, uh, maybe as a civilian or things like that. So, um, uh, so let me let me start off with with that piece. So. Um, if you want to work in a military population, it doesn't necessarily need to be in uniform. That's certainly one of the pathways you go. So if you want to be a military PT and you want to wear camouflage every day and, and you know treat active duty uh, people and, and things like that, you can certainly go through the, the military officer route. And I'll, I'll talk about your pathway to that a little bit um, in a second. Um, there are some other pathways as well. Um, you can get a position as a, what's called a GS civilian. Um, that is a government civilian. Um, those jobs are available on uh, usajobs.gov. Um, and those positions can be on military bases or that's also how the, the VA does their hiring. So, um, uh, so if you were going to go to a civilian position, one of the things I'll tell you is um, getting a civilian position in the government, um, they do give hiring preference to people that were previously working for the government. So um, if you were previously military, you're gonna get hiring preference over someone that wasn't previously military. If you were previously a government civilian, you will be getting hiring preference over somebody that isn't. So if you're looking to, if you wanna get your foot in the door and you want to be a, a civilian in the, for the government, uh, what I would tell you is, is um, you know, apply for a, a base that might be a little bit comparably less desirable, right? So maybe instead of in the beach on Florida, right? Maybe apply to somewhere, you know, in the Midwest in, in you know, in, in a Northern state that's a little bit colder, um, that's gonna be less competitive than, than the, the beach, the one on the beach. And then once you get in and now you're hired at whatever, South Dakota army base or whatever, um, now you have that, that government stink on you. Now you can go apply to you know, the beach base in Florida or whatever else, and you're gonna get hiring preference over anybody else. So um, so sometimes applying to a less desirable base would be a, a good way to get your foot in the door and then you can kind of go from there. Um, the other pathway to working with the government is do it through a contract. Um, those are a little bit more challenging to find. They can be with various contracting companies. Um, however, uh, if you're uh, going to go there out, just understand that those are typically temporary positions. Uh, contracts are typically done to fill uh, short-term uh, losses, whether it be through, you know, somebody retires or they go to combat or whatever else, and they need a, a stop gap. They need to fill that gap. Um, so a contract might last for a year, a couple of years, and then, uh, and then terminate thereafter. So uh, for those looking to go uh, in the military itself. So one thing I will say is that students, new grads, uh, are competitive for those positions. So if you are um, a student PT or if you are a new grad, uh, you are competitive. Um, in fact, you might be even more competitive than someone that has 10 years because if you think about the military and what they do, there, there aren't a whole lot of you know, 60 year olds that are joining the military new. You know, the military kind of needs for some of the, for some of the physical stuff they need you to do, um, the military primarily has a, a younger um, employment base. So, um, so new grads certainly welcome. Um, one thing I will say is um, it is a competitive hiring process. So you need to set yourself apart. So um, this is going to be true both of new grads or people with experience, but um, anything that can show uh, leadership, right? Because as a, 
military physical therapist, you are not solely going to be a clinician. You're going to be a leader. You're going to be running clinics. You're going to be supervising other physical therapists. You're going to be supervising PTAs, PT techs. Um, you're eventually going to promote up to being a commander. Uh, so, and, and you might be in charge of a surgical squadron or things like that. So they're going to expect you to be more than just a clinician. And if you think about everybody that is applying for that position is going to say, I'm a great clinician. Everyone. There's nobody that's going to apply that's going to say, yeah, I'm a below average clinician. That's just not going to happen. So, so because of that, just saying you're a great, great clinician is not going to be enough. Um, you're going to need more than that. So leadership is a big place to do it. Um, the other place to do it is to separate yourself out through service. Um, that can be service through the APTA, that can be service in the community, but you're gonna want to show some level of service. Um, the other thing that you're gonna wanna do is show some level of demonstrable evidence of success. So um, again, you can't just say things like, I'm a great clinician. Instead, go get your CSCS certification, go get, a, an ABPTS um, board certification. And frankly, if you, are, if you are a clinician with experience that has more than two years in practice, and if you don't have a board certification, your pathway to wearing the uniform is going to be substantially more difficult. Um, so I would strongly suggest you doing that. Um, the other things you can look at are um, the military really values research um, so whether that means you're participating in research, um, you know, as, as, you know, on the RCT or systematic review level, I mean, that's certainly wonderful, but if you can get a case study or two out there, that would be really well received. Um, if you're not at that level to do that, you can always find yourself a, uh, a mentor with that. I'm, I'm happy to help people out. Um, but at the very least, go present at a conference, present at a state conference, present at CSM, present at AOMT. Um, put together a, a poster on a, an interesting case, um, and that will show that you are giving back to the profession and that you are contributing to the profession and you are participating in service. Um, and it's going to say a lot about you more than just, hey, I'm a great PT. Perfect. <clears throat> Perfect. Thank you for that. That is um, a lot of great um, actionable steps. I feel like some people have talked to me before about that, and they, they talk about the barriers and the obstacles to get in. I think those are great. It's very... Um, forward and easy easy steps to, I mean not easy obviously some of them but just very actionable and very practical steps to be able to get into military PT um, and, also uh, yeah, and if I can add so for, for those that are looking to go the government civilian route um, great route uh, if that's something you want to do strongly suggest it however um, the hiring process is exceptionally slow nothing in the government goes quickly so um, that process between the start of the hiring process to you actually showing up in the clinic might take upwards of a year. So when you go into that process, understand that. So if you're applying to that process, I mean, unless unless you are independently wealthy, it might be a value for you to have a, a job lined up somewhere else that you're gonna do while you're waiting for everything to fall in place on the government end to go take that position. Um, because if you were waiting for that civilian position, uh, ultimately, you might get discouraged. So if you just go into the process understanding the hiring process for that is about a year long, if you know that ahead of time, you won't get discouraged. So that way you can press on with your life otherwise until everything drops into place. Perfect. Yeah, no, thank you for that and to kind of clarifying that to give a more um, distinct perspective on, on what to expect. Um, and yeah, like honestly, this is, this is flown by. We're almost like I think to an hour, and so like I feel like we have a lot more things we could talk about. But I don't want to be respectful of your time. Um, just a couple of things before wrapping up. So you obviously said you could, we could reach out to you. Um, would you be like, like able to share the best way to contact you um, if someone is interested in talking with you and and be able to have that mentorship from you? And as well, um, is there any other additional information or advice you would like to share with the audience? Um, that you found that once you learned it, it became such an important and aha moment in your career. Are there any of those things that you wish you had learned sooner that you could possibly share with us or think of right now? Uh, yeah, so let me, um, so I'm gonna flip those, um, I'm gonna flip those two if that's okay. So yeah, totally. um, as far as, uh, as far as aha moments, um, what I would tell you is um, be a yes person. Um, you know, in, instead of, thinking about all the reasons why something won't work 
think about all the reasons that it will. And, and um, you know, I, I think I, I look at my, my career and, and what I've accomplished and, and frankly, um, I'm comparably less talented than a lot of people that we have in, in physical therapy, um, truly. Uh, we have such an incredible array of, of talent in physical therapy. And I think that, you know, some of the successes that I've had in my, my career have largely been because when opportunities have come, I've said yes. Um, and, and I've said yes to uh, many great things. And, and it's interesting, you know, once, you know, once one great opportunity happens, then that, that begets another great opportunity, which begets, it's, it's like a snowball rolling downhill. So, um, so something is going to come your way and say yes to it, embrace it and do it and tackle it. And if it's scary and if it's something you're not comfortable with, that's great. That's perfect. Because frankly, we don't grow unless we are doing something we don't feel comfortable in, in doing. So, um, so say yes to those things. And, you know, a, a lot of you out there are probably seeing patients right now. And, and a lot of you out there are uh, probably have some unique cases going on right now. And you've already done all the work evaluating them, treating them, getting them worked up, getting them to where they need to be. And shoot, we, we need those cases in the literature to, to help guide our, our research questions. So, you know, you've already done the work. Why not write it up as a poster? Why not write it up as a case? Um, and if that makes you uncomfortable, great. You should be uncomfortable. If you want to grow, be uncomfortable, right? Um, I had a, a commander, uh, Crystal Henderson, uh, one of my, one of the best leaders I've ever worked for. And, and uh, her, her statement to me early uh, in my time at Joy Base Andrews was get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, uh, and I love that. That's a, a mantra we should, we should all live by. Um, uh, so as far as getting in touch with me, so, uh, so one thing I will say as far as, you know, if, if people want mentorship on, in imaging and things like that, uh, I do teach continuing education through Redefine Health Education uh, in diagnostic imaging. That is a synchronous online um, education on imaging. So we have uh, both an overview of imaging course, kind of the foundations of imaging, but then we also have some regional specific imaging for, you know, lumbar spine, knee, things like that. Um, so if you're looking at getting some imaging education from me while I'm live and there and can answer questions for you, that would be a great place to go. I'd welcome you to, to come join us at Redefine Health Education. Um, if you're looking to contact me offline for, um, for whatever, uh, career advice or clinical advice, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, and then the other way you can find me is through my email. It's lmabry, that's L-M-A-B-R-Y, uh, at highpoint.edu. Perfect. Thank you so much. And yeah, thank you for sharing that that thing. I think truly everybody who's been on this podcast that has, has had great success has talked about learning and seeking discomfort and getting out of that comfort zone because I feel like like we, I've talked about it before in a couple other ones is that there's no comfort in a growth zone and there's no growth in a comfort zone and yeah. that we have to be out there and although it might be uncomfortable to begin with it's going to be so beneficial in the long term so I loved that that idea of say yes and, and figure it out and learn it so thank you so much for coming on to the, the show Lance I've learned a lot and really gained a, a more deeper perspective of military PT as well as diagnostic imaging and I'm excited to be able to share this with everybody and I hope they find just as much value as I have. But thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Tracy. All right, have a good one. Thanks everybody for listening to the podcast. I hope you liked that episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe and also leave a review. Thanks everybody and we'll see you next time.